we'll get to Proverbs 3 um, in a little bit um, as we, we go into today's message. But we have been, just as a real brief, and I know you, you wonder why do we do this, because you never know who's going to be here or maybe even listen on the Internet. And it's amazing to me, again, how many times I get people and let me know that they're, they, they listen to messages on the Internet. It's really humbling to me. And um, so... Um, but we are in, in the, the midst of this series on focusing on the Christ, and we've looked at the shadow of Christ, the life of Christ, the return of Christ, the reign of Christ, and we are currently looking at the reflection of Christ. And um, last week, as we began looking at the reflection of Christ, we discussed the fact that when Christ is residing and reigning in your heart, it'll be reflected in your life. And so what we say, how we live, is a reflection of who or what is living in our heart. That if Christ is reigning in my life, if he's if he's residing, if he's living inside me, and if he's reigning, if he's ruling on the throne of my heart, then how I live out my life will be a reflection of him. And what people will see, though they may not know it, like I just shared in the testimony time with Vivaldi, you know, I, I heard that song, the symphony movements, for years. But I didn't fully understand what I was hearing, what I was seeing. And so the same thing is going to be with your life. People see things in your life. They may not fully understanding they're seeing the cross of Christ in your life. But somewhere along the line, you may have the opportunity to what? Enlighten them. To, to inform them what it is. Um, that what they're actually seeing. And what an exciting thing that for us to be then the reflection of Christ. Last week, we discussed how we reflect Christ in our words. We saw how Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 6, and I have it up here for you to, to read, He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures, thesaurus, in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy and where neither thieves break in or steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and materialism, mammon, the things that money buys. Okay. Now, note in the passage, Jesus gives us another indicator of our heart or where our heart is at. Last week we saw that where our heart was at was going to be revealed or going to be reflected in our words. Well, clearly here, who is reigning and residing in your heart is going to be reflected in your wallet. Or how it is you deal with finances in the world. How it is that you administer finances. How it is that you acquire finances. How it is that you appropriate finances. It's all going to be a matter of who is reigning in the seat of your heart. Now, as we look into this then, I want to look today, um, as I studied this and it, it, it began to grow, this became a two, three, potentially four-week series, mini-series within the mini-series within the series. Anyways, and so Marge says, you're not going to give us all that, that outline going down in there. I said, well, one day maybe I'll do that just to kind of let you know how many subsets were down into that, that, that outline. But anyways, but before we get into some of that, the, the actual the nitty-gritty of the the administration, acquiring, and acquisition, I think it's important for us to consider three biblical uh, precepts or principles 
that apply to finances before we start looking at the stewardship of those finances. And the, the first thing is that we want to look at is the principle of lordship. And here in Matthew 6, when Jesus was talking, he gave us a principle that went along that revealed our hearts. He says, you know, for where your heart is, there your treasure will be also, or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But later in the the, the um, section there, he wrote in verse 24, he said, no one can serve two masters. There's the principle of lordship that's going to override everything you do with your finances. And he says that no one can serve two masters. You're either going to serve one or the other. There is no what? Standing on the fence. Too many of us try to play the, the fence game. We try to say, okay, you're Lord of my life, you're my God, but I get control of the purse strings. I would liken that to Judas Iscariot. Who was Judas Iscariot? He was the one who portrayed Jesus. What else do we know that he was within the group of... Uh, he was a thief. He was the treasurer. Steve Moore. We've got to watch Steve. No, anyways. Uh, but no. But, but each one of us individually, we have a purse. We have money that we're going to see as we come through here that God has given to us for his use. How is it, though, we use it? Do we see him as the Lord? Well, Jesus said you can't serve God and what? Mammon, I've already stated that mammon is, is literally, that's a transliteration, that's the word, mammon, okay? Mammon is the things that money buys, it's the things that wealth acquires. We would bring that today, colloquially, into, into English as materialism. You can't serve materialism and God at the same time. If you're looking at getting more and more of this world, you're not looking at Christ. That's a hard statement. In fact, it's a hard statement that Jesus talked about numerous times. Romans chapter 6, we read the principle of this lordship as well, where he says that, Do you not know that whom you offer yourselves as a slave to obey, you are the one slave to whom you obey, whether of sin leading unto death or obedience leading unto righteousness? And the point is that you are a what? Slave. You are serving a lord or master, not God. Something is a little g maybe. Okay, But you have a Lord, you have a Master, you are a slave. The difference is, you get the privilege of what? Choosing who you're going to be a slave to. You can say, I'm an American, I, I, I'm a slave to nobody. You still are a slave. The difference is, you get to offer yourself as a slave to whoever. And if you offer yourself as a slave to sin or a slave to, to, to flesh, then that's whose slave you're going to be. But if you offer yourself and you see Christ as your Lord, you see God as the, the master of your life, then you offer yourself as, as, to him as a slave. And Jesus said then later in Matthew 19, in the same concept, he says, um, when he's talking to the rich young ruler, he said, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. So, and when he goes through this discord, he says, you know, the rich young ruler comes, he says, what must good thing that I do to enter into heaven? He says, well, you know the commandments, you know, honor your father, do these things, da 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 and, you know, do all the last six of the commandments, right? And the rich young ruler says to him, what? I've done all these things. I, from, from my youth, I've done all these things. Jesus said, okay, you lack one thing. Here's what it is. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And we read that the rich young ruler did what? 
Well, verse 22, but when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, stop for a moment. Do you understand that Americans are all Americans are within the top 10% of the world? You are stinking rich. Even though in, the, in our culture, you may say, I'm lower middle class, or I'm lower class, or maybe I'm middle class. Whatever it is, according to the world standard, you are, you are rich. You have great possessions. There are many in the world who would love to just have a copy of the Bible, and you have what? Numerous. We struggle over which version we want to use. You know, I have every once in a while when I when my Bible wears out and I got to get another one, I, I struggle with the decision of what am I going to preach out of? Am I sticking with New King James? Did I, when I started, I was preaching out of the King James. And it was just kind of, I said, I've memorized all these books of the Bible, passages out of King James. And, and so, I went to switch to New King James once, and I bought one because I was going to go there, and I found myself really struggling because every time I start quoting, I quoting in King James, so I got rid of that. I had to go buy a King James Bible, you know. But I had the privilege in this economy to do what? To, to make that. I mean, I, I had, I, I, I could, I could struggle over that. Well, in other places in the world, they just want a Bible. I've got it in an e-sword. I mean, I, in fact, there are multiple ones up on the internet now that you can use. The fact that you're going on the internet on a daily basis is not something that most of the world does. Jesus said, you got to go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. The, the, the young man went away sorrowful, he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at him and said, But with men it's what? Impossible. But with God all things are possible. The fact is, because man struggles with what? I mean, Jesus talked about this probably more than any other topic other than salvation. Greed. Well, with money. That's exactly right. I mean, isn't it amazing that when Jesus narrowed it down to two things that you had to choose between... He always brings it down to God or money. And where you spend your money, how you use your money, other than your words, which clearly are an indicator, next to your words, how you spend your money and what you do with your money is going to be a real indicator of who you're serving. As we get to the appropriations phase, I shouldn't be telling you that because you might miss, okay? Anyways, as we get to those phases, the question is going to be, who gets the first priority and who gets the most? That may be an indicator of who your Lord is, of who you're serving. The principle of lordship is out there. Who is in control of the purse strings of your life? If Jesus said to you, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, now, I understand it's not a matter of salvation. That's work salvation. It's not, we're not there. But you're saved. Jesus says to you, now, I want you to go sell everything you have, including your house, including your cars, everything, including your boats, including your Wii's, including your stereos, including just everything. I mean, you go down this laundry list of things that you have and you think you have nothing. And I want you to send it to the work that I'm doing in Rwanda, wherever. Because they have a need for... $75,000 over there. And if you liquidated everything you had, you would have $75,000 
So send it to the need that's over there, and I'll provide for you. Would you do it? Or would you say, I must have had bad pepperoni last night on my pizza? Because clearly, I refuse to do that. Who is the Lord of the purse strings of your wallet? Who are you serving with your, with your money? Jesus said, it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, clearly, that needle in that picture is what? That's pretty large. Okay? But still, even with a large needle, look how emaciated the camel is. Now, I understand that's probably doctored with what? Some Photoshop thing, okay? But that should tell you just by itself that that looks so ridiculous. How much harder is it for a camel to go through a true eye of a needle? Ladies, you can get that needle out that you use to go through leather. I'm not talking about the little needle that we use to go through some of the fine clothes, but you know the difference, ladies, if you sew the difference, and I know that we're getting to a generation of women who probably don't do this much anymore. Anyways, the difference between the the, the little fine needles and the the big leather needles, have you ever seen a big leather needle? Say say that, George. You need pliers to pull it through. Yeah, so it's big, so you can almost push it through, and it's got a, you know, it's got a big eye because you're using a leather strap through it. And you're, and you're feeding a leather strap. So it's got, it's big. Okay? So I mean, so even take that big needle. The fact is you're still not going to do what? Get a camel through it. And you can emaciate that camel as much as you want. <laughs> and it still ain't going to what? Go through it. And so the disciples hear it and they understand he's saying in hyperbole. He's not saying we really need to do this in order for rich people to get saved. Okay? He's giving them a word picture, but they understand the word picture, and they said, wow, if that's really true, then who can be saved? What is one thing the Jews do that we tend to do as well when we look at riches? We tend to consider riches as a what? A sign of blessing. A sign of blessing. It's interesting, when you go to the Beatitudes, in the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus said, blessed are the poor. Hmm. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the earth. What's the point? We have it all backed up. We have a worldly wisdom. Remember we talked last week about about having a a different vision, a different worldview, not having a secular worldview, but a biblical worldview? What worldview do you have of finances? What's exciting about this passage, though, is the very end. He said, with men, this is what? It's impossible. It's not a possible. It, it is not possible for man in and of himself to overcome this obstacle. But with God, all things are possible. If you're here today and you would say to yourself, wow, okay, you've already stepped on my toes. I know this is an area I struggle with. I want to encourage you. There is no temptation that's overtaken you, no struggle, no troublesome situations overtaken you, but such as common to man. I understand your turmoil. And I'm sure everybody here understands the turmoil. But I can assure you on the other side of it that God can take care of this turmoil if you would just give him the purse strings. If you would just hand it to him and say, God, I trust you. I trust you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. 
Now, if you do that, I want to caution you because we're going to get into the second principle, and the second principle is the principle of what? Ownership. Because the minute you acknowledge the fact that he is the Lord of your life, not just the Lord of, of a, um, by title, but actually in practicality, you're going to understand that he's not just the Lord, he's the, the owner of everything that's there. In Exodus 19, verse 5, as the children of Israel are coming out of, out of Egypt and they're, they're into the wilderness, okay, he says to them, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people. And I can say this, why? Because all the earth is mine. All the earth is mine. Psalm 24, verse 1, he says, The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and all who what? Dwell in it. Lest you think that everything you own is yours, think again. Now, first of all, let's just use a very secular, benign, it's not very benign, actually, um, it's, um, illustration, secular illustration. Who owns your house? The bank. You say, I do. I'm buying my house. I, I, I own my house. No, actually, I'm still making what? Payments. Therefore, the bank owns my house. I stop making payments to the bank, and they'll start saying what? Get out of my house. Okay? Because it's not your house. It's my house. We had a contract, and you said that you would lease that house for 30 years, 15 years, 10 years, whatever it was, and you would be making these rent payments. You say, it's not rent. I'm, I'm, I'm buying. Oh, yeah? Well, until you get to that final payment, guess what? It's just a glorified term for rent. Okay? The problem is you're renting to what? To own. You have a contract that after you, you stop making these lease payments, these rent payments, that it's ultimately going to be what? Yours. Really? Okay. Now you've made that 30, that 30th year payment and you've got the, you've got the what? The, the deed. Thank you. Okay. And you said, Tetelestai. It's been paid for. Nothing more needs to be paid. And you fail to, to let Uncle Sam have the, the joy of considering the fact that what? He owns the property. That's right. It's not really yours, and it's not really the bank's. Because you know what? As you're making those payments to the bank, the bank is doing what? The bank is making payments to Uncle Sam, to the government. Because the government ultimately then owns that what? Land. And so even though you've made all those payments, you, you spent all those thousands of dollars and hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to own that little hovel on a little piece of ground, the government still says it is according to our blessings that we, pre we present you the right to even consider that to be your parcel of land. And so if you fail to give them their couple hundred dollars a year or thousands of dollars, whatever it's going to be, okay, then they will come in and they will say what? Get off of my land. Wait a second. I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to live on this land. But you fail to realize that all you have to do is spend thousands of dollars to us. Get off of my land. And that's where it ends, right? It's not where it ends. Ultimately, and what the government doesn't realize, what the United States has lost sight of, is that ultimately this land belongs to God. Everything I quote-unquote own, I ultimately don't own. God owns. And God has given me the privilege of having it in my possession. And you can say, well, possession is what? 
nine tenths. It's the other tenth you got to worry about. Okay, God ultimately what owns it. He owns it. Now, what is your thought process on this? You can say theologically that you believe that. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, that's something that we would just very theoretically say. Oh, yeah, yeah, God God owns everything. He owns the cattle on a what? Oh, isn't it amazing how you can quote this stuff? In fact, God says in Psalm 50, that's where it comes from. He says, hear my people, and I will speak to Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house or goats out of your folds. Why? For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds in the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. Isn't that awesome? He knows every single bird. I don't know if you've ever gone hunting or been in the woods, okay? Uh, one of the things I love um, about hunting is I don't have to get a deer every time I go. That's the adrenaline rush, and that's kind of fun. But one of the things I love when I go hunting is just the peace and the quiet, the joy of being in God's creation. And there are times when I hear what I think is a bird or something going over my head, and I look up, and it's really a bunch of tiny birds, a whole flock going. And you know what? Those little bitty birds... A whole flock of them can make a big old noise as they go by me. You know, and I'm looking up and I'm trying to find this bird and I don't find a bird. I wind up seeing what? A bunch of little bitty birds. And there's a lot of them. At this time of the year, we're starting to get what? Blackbirds. Okay? Have you ever looked out in your yard and see all the blackbirds that migrate? Did you ever try to count them? You have? Did you ever succeed? No. There's a lot. Your ears are but wow, and you didn't count. That's a lot of buzzards. <laughs> wow. I start to worry about start counting my kids. <laughs> Anyways, uh, if I got that many buzzards in my yard. Anyways, uh, <laughs> that's a lot of buzzards. They were over your yard. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's be- that's better. Well, you go out there and you look at all those blackbirds that are there. It's amazing. And to think that what I know all the birds. I know them all. God says, I got them all covered. I know them all. Verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you why. All the world is mine in its fullness. Now, what does this say to me in this ownership thing? We're going to see this later as we get the stewardship part of it. If I have a need, then what? God can provide it. He says he owns the cattle on what? A thousand hills. If it is a need for me to eat right now, God can do what? He can provide me food. It doesn't matter. Think about the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. All they'd ever known was what? Egypt. No, they didn't know manna yet. Didn't know manna. When they were in Egypt, all they knew was Egypt, right? And so what did they know when they were in Egypt? Slavery. But they ate. Did they eat well? Did they? Did they eat good? See, when do, when do we hear about how good they eat? When they're in the wilderness doing what? Murmuring and disputing and whining and complaining and doubting God's provision. 
Do you think that they were excited about having a diet of leeks and melons? Come on, honestly, man has not changed. What else do you want with that? Meat. <laughs> you know, meat. One of, the, one of the things they start complaining about in the wilderness, there's no meat. Now, I understand that they didn't eat meat like we eat meat. Okay? I mean, they didn't just cut a slab of a steak and just, you know. I mean, if they could have a couple pieces of meat in there, just give it a little bit of flavoring and, and maybe a little, a couple morsels, it was exciting. Okay? And so, but they remember what was there. And now they're out in the wilderness, and they have no bread. They have no food. And they begin to, instead of going to God, looking for his provision, they begin to what? Whine. Whine. They begin to whine. They begin to complain. Does this sound familiar? Does it sound like anybody you know? Does it sound like anybody you see in the mirror? I know, again, there's no temptation that's overtaken me or you that such is common to man. And I know that even with the wealth that I have, even with the abundance that I have, even with the food that I eat, and how God provides for me overly and abundantly beyond what all I could ever ask or think, I still have a tendency to do what? Focus on the things that I don't have. But even in that statement, I fail theologically, don't I? Because I focus on the things that I don't have. The statement by itself means that I what? I own them. No, I own them. I don't have them. God hasn't what? Given them to me. Well, the reality is that I have to look at everything that I have, quote unquote, is not really mine anyway. It's really whose? God's. And he gave it to me then for a purpose. Now, logically then, if God is the owner of all things, not me, and God then in, in this ownership of everything that he has, has given them to me for a purpose, then I should want to know what? What the purpose is. What does he want me to do? Well, that leads us to our third principle. That's the principle of discipleship. You say, the principle of discipleship. Well, remember we said, you know, who you... Um, offer your stuff to, that's, that's who your Lord you are, right? Who, who's not Lord you are, but who is your Lord, okay? And that's going to lead to ownership. But the reality is, you also then are somebody's what? Disciple. You are listening to somebody. Somebody is instructing you. Somebody is influencing you. You're not a vacuum. From the time that you were born, you've been a what? You've been a blank CD, DVD now, a blank um, flash drive, a, a blank hard drive, however you want to look at this thing, right? You were, might have been born with personality and, and that kind of stuff, but instantly, from the day that you were born, your parents were what? Teaching you. Most children learn within the first three years of their life more than they will learn the rest of their life. They're learning patterns. It's neat to watch Anna learn to read. And it just, you know, just kind of, boom, boom, boom. she's five. It's interesting over the last two years to see her logical processes begin to be revealed. It's interesting to watch how she pieces things together and can turn them back on you at five. You go, hmm. It's an amazing thing, the mind. How did she learn to conjugate words before she took English? By being taught, by being influenced, by people speaking around her. That you, without you realizing it, when you were a little baby, you were listening to how people 
spoke, and you are already imitating it within your mind. Why do people have that funny accent down here? I mean, why do they talk with that southern thing? Everything's a twang. It's because the parents did. Somewhere along the line, somebody had a twang. I can't figure out why Timmy sounds like he's from Boston. Anyways, we're not from Boston. Anyways, in, but there was an influence somewhere in his life, you know. <laughs> we're trying to figure out who the infiltrator was. Anyways, but there was, there was influences in my life to bring me up the way that I am even today. I thank my God for my father and my mother. Though there may be things that I look back at my mom and dad and I say, hmm, I might have wanted to change that. But I realize that even today, at the age of 50, I'm a product of a lot of the influences that they brought into my life. Moms and dads, this is very important. That's why one of the, 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 the qualifications for an elder, for a bishop, is that he rules well his own house. If he doesn't know how to rule his own house, how will he know how to rule the church? I've heard pastors, elders, try to get past that one with the sovereignty of God issue and say, well, I can't have no control over that. However God does, designs them and however he, he predestines them to be, that's how they're going to be. And so that, that doesn't really affect me. And I go, really? I'm not quite sure why it's in the Bible then. Maybe God messed up by putting that qualification in the Bible and he really didn't know that either. You are going to be an influence in the life of your children. Now, here's the deal. If I know that, okay, here's another, then who's influencing me? I'm at the age now that I can choose my what? My influencers. I, I can choose my master. Remember, we've already discussed this. I can choose the one who's going to disciple me. Last week, I challenged you, especially the men, okay, but even the women, I challenged you about how much time you spend listening to who? Rush Limbaugh, Neil Bortz, um, all those other guys that I, 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 I studied their names last week, but not this week. Anyways, so all those guys that are on the radio that you listen to, all the politicians right now, it's a political bantering season. All the, the CNNs and the Fox um, people, I don't know the people's names. There's that woman, that Paula something that people watch. What's her name? Come on, some of you guys know. Okay, anyways, you don't want to tell me. Anyways, not to say it, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So anyways, but those people, whether you like it or not, whether you're thinking about it or not, are influencing you and in how you think and so here's the challenge who do you want to influence you and in how you think well we already read from proverbs 3 this morning remember i said in the beginning of the message we're going to come back there in proverbs chapter 3 what do we see we read trust in what trust in the lord trust in yahweh with all your what with all your heart lean not unto your what own understanding acknowledge him in all your ways and he will do what direct your paths what does it mean to direct your paths? To give you directions. To give you instruction. To help you know which way you should go. In what realm does that apply? Well, it already says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean on your understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him. So what realms do you think that God wants to direct your paths in? All of them. Now, I find this very interesting. Okay, context. A lot of times we just memorize verses. We memorize. You all knew that verse, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him all your ways. No direct your path. I'm gone with that one. Good. Okay, I can quote it to somebody else. It's all about salvation. Trusting in the Lord with all your heart. It's all about salvation. Really, we ignore the rest of the verse. It's all about what? Discipleship. 
It's all about godly living. It's all about set-apart living. It's all about sanctified living. If I trust Him with all my heart, He will direct my path in every way. Do you understand? So I acknowledge Him in all my ways, and He will direct my path. And then it says, don't be wise in your own eyes. Moms and dads, have you ever sold that to your kids? And when did you use it? You used it in a context that they didn't want to accept your wisdom. Judge not, lest you be judged. And with what judgment you judge others, guess what? God's going to use it against you, pressed down and full and overflowing. So every time you tell your kids, don't be wise in your own eyes, listen to, listen to wisdom, you're convicting what? Yourself. How many times is it that in that, that order, hierarchy of authority, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says that the head of Christ is God and the head of man is Christ and the head of woman is man. We like that one, guys, don't we? The head of woman is man. Well, the other side of that is the head of every man is what? Christ. And so every time I look at my wife and I struggle with her being in, unsubmissive to me, insubordinate to me, then judge not lest you be judging with what judgment you judge others be pressed down and full to you, right? Then guess what God's going to be doing? He's judging you based on what? Your insubordination and unsubmissiveness to him. So same thing here. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Okay? Adults, don't be wise in your own eyes, Right? Fear God, fear Yahweh, and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Now, I think this is interesting. Again, context-wise, it's not that he stops and he's going to start something else. Now he's going to give us a, a prime illustration of how we can be trusting in the Lord with all our heart and leaning not into our own understanding. We can be acknowledging him in our own ways and allowing him to direct our path and not being wise in our own eyes, but rather we can be fearing the Lord right, and departing from evil. And he says, honor the Lord, honor Yahweh with your possessions. Ouch! Hmm, isn't it interesting that all the way back there in the Old Testament, that the primary way that the, our heart is going to be revealed, and whether we're really trusting Him and acknowledging Him and looking to Him for direction, is going to be what? My purse. My wallet. My bank account. Honor Yahweh with your possessions and with the first fruit of your increased. There's a promise that goes with it. What's that? So your barns will be what? Filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. Do you believe that? Do you honestly believe that if you honor the Lord with all your possessions, and we'll talk about this again in, in, in probably a week or two from now, that do you honestly believe that if you honor the Lord with all your possessions, that God will cause you to overflow? If you say yes, then my next question is going to be, so do you do it? Are you the rich young ruler who was willing to lay it all on the, on the line, who was willing to sell everything and give it to the poor and to trust God? I'm not talking about tithing this morning. We'll get there. But clearly, first of all, let me say, I don't count money. There's a reason I don't count the money. Well, there's actually two reasons I don't count money. First is the, the conflict, what appears to be a conflict of interest, okay? Uh, the, the avoid the appearance of evil. I don't want my hands touching the money so no one accuses me of stealing from the till or whatever. It's just to pr- protect the ministry of God, okay? But secondly, I don't want to know who's giving what. Now, I know there's some guys that know in the congregation. And I know that they, at times I'm told, man, there are people who aren't giving. They don't tell me who. Okay? So I know that in this, in this church, okay, and over the church and how we've gone ups and downs, okay, 
where are the givings at? Right now, we've got less than $5,000 came in this month. Now, I'm not trying to bang on that. What I know, though, is that not everybody is what? Trusting God with all their heart and leaning on their own understanding. They are leaning on their own understanding. They're not acknowledging God in all their ways. They're not honoring God with their possessions and the first fruit of their thing. Okay. Now, if that's you, that's something you have to go between you and God, not me. Understand? You're not going to give an account to me. I'm not reading. I'm not going to count the money. I'm not, I don't look over your giving statement or lack of giving statement. I don't know. That's between you and God. But the point is that if that is you, if He is going to be your discipler, if He is your master, if He is your Lord then he says that the one way you're going to show that is honoring the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruit of increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty, your vats will be overflowing with new wine. And he goes on and says, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. I think this, again, is amazing in its context. Because look at the next verse after it. Happy is the man who finds wisdom, and the man who gains understanding. Her proceeds are better than the profit of the silver and gold. So he goes back to money. This is all about money. Do you get it? So why does he talk about chastisement in the middle of money? Because as we're going to see from the book of Malachi, that God also says that if you don't don't give him what's his, it's actually stealing, and he can send a devourer into your field. Now, you may not have a field, but you have a bank account. You have a budget, or lack thereof. And, and you have a, a, a pattern of way you're spending money. And you know what God can do? God can take it. You either give him what's his and honor him with it, or God says it's mine anyway. And God can rebuke the devourer, it's amazing to me how many times when I was in seminary that budget-wise, my expenses, my appropriations part of the budget, my, my what outgo, budget-wise, was more than my income. Just on paper, I expected to get less in than I had to spend. I mean, I'm not talking about, for all of us, I was in seminary, we didn't have entertainment and vacation funds. You know, that wasn't part of the fun site. Okay, I mean utilities, food, you know, rent, school. That was the the expenditures that was there. You get two and a half to three years, you're there. I mean, it's everything's there. When I gave God what I had committed to Him, that was at least a tithe. We always had overflow. But when I got nervous and I started paying bills first, I never had enough for a tithe. I just want to tell you, go to God for his wisdom. And not just go to God for his wisdom and know it, but go to God for his wisdom and what? Do it. Apply it. God promises that if you truly are his disciple, and you're not just listening, but you're being a doer of the word. Remember we talked about that last week? Being doers of the word, not hearers only. That when you are a doer of the word, that he will what? Bless you. God's word is consistent. Colossians chapter 2. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you with philosophy through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. I cannot stand how business how corporate politics and practices have creeped into the American church. It's not so. I remember the previous church that I was at, toward the end of it. I remember the different meetings. It had it, it gotten back to, I felt, corporate business meetings. I remember that when I was a kid. 
go into a couple business meetings in the church I grew up in. And I remember people fighting over money. It wasn't a matter of how God was going to be honored with the money. It was their own little baby. It was their own appropriations. It was their own pork. I mean, it was just take the U.S. Congress and, and all that kind of stuff and bring it down to the church. In every church, I'm just picking on those other churches, every church can do the same thing. We'll get to that in a few, about a month or so, or two months from now, when we start talking about the church. But right now we're talking about what? Me individually. So, it's easy to see that out there in churches, right? But what about you individually? Who, whose principles, whose practices are overriding how you use finances? Dave Ramsey? Larry Burkett? Not bad names, are they? I mean, th th those are good names. They're teaching you how to budget, okay? But are you a student of them, or are you a student of Jesus Christ? Now, it's okay to have somebody else. I mean, you're here, and I'm teaching you. But my challenge to you always is, hopefully, is to what? Get in the Word. Get in the Word. And that's even now, I'm giving you principles and practices, but I'm encouraging you to do what? Get in the Word. Don't just accept what I'm telling you. Get in the Word. Be a student of God's Word. Let Him be your disciple. Jesus said it's profitable for you, for me to leave, because when I leave, I'm going to send you the Holy Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And when I leave and the Holy Comforter comes, He's going to do something for you. What's He going to do for you? He's going to teach you all things. He's going to lead you into all truth. He's going to remind you of my teachings. That's what the Holy Spirit... You have the same Holy Spirit that I have. There's nothing special about me because a group of people a couple of years ago decided that I was going to be the senior teaching pastor of this little body. And so therefore, when I, when I attained that position, I received the Holy Spirit so I can study God's Word and know it and teach it. That's a bunch of bunk. Now, God may gift me to be able to present His truth, but I don't think it's a special gift for me to learn from His Word. I think that's a promise he gave every single one of us. The question is, how much time do you spend in his teachings? Being his disciple. Jesus said to those Jews who believed on him, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Many of you are enslaved to lenders. The Bible very clearly, and we'll talk about this in the future, that the borrower is servant to the lender. You are enslaved to other men. Now, I understand that there's certain things in life that we're going to have to, I mean, I'm either going to be enslaved to a, a landlord or I'm going to be enslaved to a bank. You understand? Unless I'm living in a, a box under the Fifth Street Bridge. But if you choose to live in a, in a house in our culture, you're going to be enslaved to a landlord, enslaved to a bank. We'll talk about that as we go. Okay? How what Bob feels, according to God's word, is the better option there. Okay? But it doesn't matter. Now, get get away from the house. Okay? And I'm not talking about utilities. I know the minute we turn the light on, and the minute we use this, we're enslaved to the to the the, the utility company. I, I get that. Okay? How many of you have electricity? 
of course. Okay, so and you have water and other kind of stuff. So those are basic things that you have that go along with your house. But beyond that, beyond that, are you following Christ-like, biblical, godly principles, or are you following the basic principles of the the world? I would challenge you that most Christians in the United States are not following the principles of God. They're following the principles of men. Finally, Ephesians 4 tells me, This I say, therefore, in testifying the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, yada, 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 down in verse 20. Why? You have not so learned Christ. Look at the, look at the condition, though. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. So, there is an assumption going on here that you shouldn't walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk because what? Christ is in you. You've heard of Jesus and because he's in you and because you've heard of him, you've desired what? To, to follow him, to learn more about how he would have you walk in this world. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by Bob. Is that what it says? So, if indeed you have, you have heard Bob and taught by Bob as the truth is in Jesus. It doesn't say that. It says that you're looking for truth from who? From Jesus. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much will be what? We've already said how stinking rich we are and how many copies of the Bible we have at home. You can have eSword on your computer. You can have all kinds of stuff at home if you choose to use it, and if you choose to use the resources that God has given you for his glory and for you to know his word. But we spend more time on me than on him. We spend more time on entertainment than theological education. Now, I'm not saying you've got to go to Bible college. I'm not saying you've got to go to seminary. I'm saying you've just got to open up this book and read it and study it and learn it. We become experts on so many different things, but wouldn't you think that someone who says that they're a follower of Christ ought to be an expert on Christ? The principle of discipleship pervades everything. Everything. Including my my money. Over the next couple weeks, we're going to be considering the principles of stewardship. Now, some of you are breathing a sigh of relief. Really? I thought I still have all these other blanks I'm supposed to be filling out today. That's for you to potentially go ahead and start applying the principles of discipleship. I've left you the blanks for the first section under the principles of stewardship. You have some blanks there. And you have Bible verses that are right there beside it. And I challenge you that if you read those Bible verses, if you go and look at them, you'll probably be able to figure out what? What goes in the the blank. Okay. Now, you may not. You may not have the exact word that I had there. You'll find out what those words were next week. But there's a challenge to you. If you want to start applying what we've learned today, I put it to you. There it is. I think there's only four blanks there, isn't there? Four. Four blanks. P, H, D, and C. Okay? Lots of verses there. Okay? You can go start reading them. It doesn't take a long time. They're not huge sections. They're just verses. Okay? A lot of them from Proverbs. Okay? And see, what does God say about the administration of finances? Because the first place we're going to look at is, here you go, I'm going to give you your A's, okay? This helps you out a little bit, okay? We're going to look at the administration of my finances, of your finances, of our finances. How is it 
that overall, the overarching principles, what is it that goes toward me being a steward of his resources? If he is the owner, if he's the Lord of my life and he's the owner of it, and if I'm following the principles, that means that I'm going to be a what? A godly steward. Is that true? So, what are those principles that are the overarching principles that are within that administration of the finance? Secondly, we're going to look at the acquisition of the finances, financial resources. What does the Bible say about me gathering the finances? About how should I be receiving and getting and acquiring and, and, and earning, hopefully earning, not stealing, um, the resources that I have? And then finally, the one that you really are, want to know or don't want to know, and that is, how am I supposed to what? Spend it, appropriate it, distribute is a good, a good word there, Don, but probably most of us don't want that word. We want to know the word spend. <laughs> you know, it's not a matter of appropriations. It's not a matter about distributing. Those still have stewardship aspects. It's just a matter of if it's me, I just want to know how can I what? Spend it on me. But what I think we ought to want to desire is to know how does God want us to appropriate his resources. The word appropriation, we're going to talk about that when we get there. Really, we understand a lot from the government perspective because we have an appropriations committees and stuff, right? And what do the appropriations committees decide? How the money should be apportioned, spent. What monies? Tax money. Our money. Our money. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get let's go away from the ownership thing for a moment. But anyways, but because you're right. But the point is, they have a what? A trust. What we understand, and this is not to be political, but what many of the congressmen and senators have forgotten is that they're what? Stewards. They're stewards. They don't own that money. It's not theirs. It's a trust fund, in a sense, if you would. It's a fund that they have been entrusted with to be proper stewards. Does that make sense? Well, if we can see that for them and we get really riled up at this time of this, the, the, the season, you know, when we have elections and stuff like this and, and we, you know, we're going to be infuriated at these guys. What do you think God thinks about us? God's entrusted us. And, and the fact is that if I want to use the, the, this, this line of judgment on others, again, I've said this numerous times today, haven't I? <laughs> that God's going to do what? He's going to bring it right back into me. And so if I'm offended at the way Congress appropriates their, my, the funds that I help give them, the stewardship, they misuse the stewardship that they've been given because they're supposed to be servants, then how does it, what does it say about myself? Because clearly a few weeks ago, a few months ago, we already declared that I'm a what? I'm a servant. He's my Lord. And I then ought to be a steward of the resources that he owns and he's distributed to me. And so if he was going to grade me, I got a congressional scorecard. And he was going to grade me. And he was going to put it out. So, and he's going to do it for all of us. We're all running for an office here, whatever the office is. And he, and, and he puts out the political scorecard, you know, and says, chink, chink, chink. Would you want everybody to see it? Or would you be mad like Newt? Hmm. So, how well is Christ reflected in your finance? Secondly, who's the Lord of your bank account? Who holds the purse strings? Who holds the wallet? Who opens and closes it and decides where it's going to go? Whose disciple are you? 
Whose counsel do you honestly trust and follow? Again, are you more a student of men or a student of God? And finally, as it should be in every message, is there a need to change the way you think? Is there a need for repentance? To go to God and say, God, I have failed you in this area. But I'm thankful that you are a God of grace and a God of mercy. And I'm grateful that you've said in your word that if I confess my sin, that you will be faithful and just to forgive me my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. If you know that this is an area that you need to work on, I would challenge you to take it before the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is quick, it is powerful, and it is sharper than a two-edged sword. And Lord, so many times, Lord, both in my speech and in my wallet, you reveal to me how many times I struggle with you being the Lord of my life. Though I would say, Lord, Lord, so many times I, I struggle with that practically. I'm thankful, Lord, for the life that you've given me. I'm thankful for how you revealed yourself to me in your word in how you have saved me and delivered me from sin. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a body, as individuals within the body, to seek to magnify and glorify you, to reflect you in all that we say, in all that we do. Lord, I know, especially in this culture, in this, um, in this society that we live in, that how we spend our money and where we place our resources is a huge indicator of what we see as important in our life. Lord, I pray that we will not run from this and from you, but that we would seek to embrace you and to seek to embrace your word and to reflect you in all that we do, including our finances. In Christ's name, amen.